morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at today verses 20 and 21, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Uh, if, you, uh, if you are stressed, I would invite you to come and walk on our property. The little acorns have started to fall, and as you step on them, they pop, and it just relieves all types of stress. Uh, it, it feels rather nice. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. You'll want to come before Thursday. Thursday, they blow them all off. Uh, but uh, if you come Wednesday, there's a lot, and you can just walk and pop those things. It's like nature's bubble wrap. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 20 and 21. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The word of the Lord says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, praise that Paul does. I pray that we will also be expressing our praise and adoration that will glorify you with our words and our actions. Father, I pray if there's someone here who is not saved, they've never trusted Christ as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. That today they'll put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that they'll realize that they're a sinner and there's nothing they can do to save themselves. Father, I pray for other of us here that maybe our life is not giving glory to you. I pray that the Spirit would convict us and show us those areas that we need to change for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Paul concludes his prayer that he started with uh, a doxology. A doxology is a statement of praise. It's a statement of extolling praise. Now, um, uh, he concludes this section, uh, the prayer, with a praise, but it's also the conclusion of what is typically called the doctrinal section of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 uh, tend to be called sometimes the, the doctrinal aspect. Uh, it gives a lot of indicatives of who uh, God is and, and who we are in Christ uh, because of God's plan. It, it doesn't go into a lot of imperatives or commands of how we're supposed to live, but rather it tells us where we are uh, in Christ, uh, how God has foreordained this, how he has planned this, how he has chosen, how he has predestined, and how those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. These are truths that Paul explains. He explains that you were dead in your trespasses of sin, uh, but now have been made alive. Now, as, as we look at this, he's concluding not only his prayer with a doxology, but he's concluding also his doctrinal section with a doxology, which then gives an introduction to uh, the rest of the letter. As, as we look at this and we are trying to study it, there's really two ways that we can kind of look at this text to, to understand it. The first way is by looking at the sense of it, 
as in the meaning. Uh, the sense, and to understand the sense, we, we would understand, we start looking with the words and try to understand its significance. How, how do these, what, what does this word mean? Well, we know that words have a, a range of meaning, a semantic range. And in that semantic range, as we look up each of these words, uh, we start to see that there's a variety of possibilities that this uh, that can be meaning here. What, what does this word mean? And we start seeing that each word has a, a kind of a, a semantic range, a, a range of meaning for each thing. And then, uh, of course, those words aren't just in isolation one from another. Of course not. They're in relation to one another. And they're subjects and, and ver verbs, the action of the subject. And it's related in some way to a direct object or indirect object. And uh, there's prepositional phrases. There's the object of the preposition. There's the, uh, all these things that are related one to another as we look at these. And, and this relationship then starts to cause a, a narrowing of meaning for the words. So you have a, a whole semantic range of, of a meaning but then little by little, as we see how the words are related to other words in, in the clause, in the sentence, we start to see that there starts to be a narrowing of meaning. And then, of course, uh, the, those clauses, those sentences are uh, in paragraphs. And the paragraphs are developing a logic that the author is communicating. So it, it, it corresponds one with another. And as you look at the, the discourse of the letter... You start to see that even further, the meaning of words have now been narrowed to the point of showing what the author intended to communicate. Now, we look at the sense of this, and, and we can look at verse 20 to understand. He's not giving a, a, a thanksgiving. He, he's giving a doxology. Uh, thankfulness is what God has done for you. And uh, I will be very honest that we tend to have trouble remembering to be thankful for the Lord. We'll pray and beg the Lord for something, and then he will deliver, he will give it, and uh, we don't pause to even think before we're thinking of our next problem, our next situation that we need God to, again, move into our life and solve for us. And God keeps on solving these things over and over again, but typically we don't look back and say, thank you, God, for what you have done. But this isn't a, a thanksgiving. This is a praise. And, and the difference is that there is a, um, God has done something, uh, but it's not necessarily directly related to, to Paul. He's extolling the greatness of God and his plan and his wisdom and his power. So he's going into this doxology. Now, it shows something about a person, and, and I don't say this as reprimanding, rather as showing my own heart, that if we uh, lack praise to the Lord, it shows something going on within us. If our conversation, we start to track it, and it's always something negative about some other person, and there is rarely any time where we are extolling the greatness of God, of his wisdom and his power and his might, it doesn't reflect on God and his person, but rather it reflects what's going on within my desires, but what's going on deep in my heart and my lack of being in awe of God. Paul ends this section looking at how great God is. Now, the verse starts with now, which is a, a conjunction that is 
closely related to the previous section, but marks it off as a little bit different. So we're looking at, to try to understand the sense, we're looking at the meaning of the words, and it says, now to him who is able, it's a, it's a participle, which is a, a verbal adjective. It, it, uh, it kind of describes him who is mentioned over in verse 14, being the father. It's talking about God. And what is described about the Father is that He is able. It, it means He has the capacity. He has the ability. If you were going to go over to uh, U-Haul and rent a, 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 one of those trailers, the first thing they're going to ask you when you try to go rent the trailer is, what type of vehicle are you going to be towing this trailer with? And you say rather proudly, well, a Toyota Camry, of course. And they say, no, your car does not have the capability. It does not have the power to do this. You cannot rent this trailer because it does not have the ability to do this. Here, the word that Paul is using to describe God is he is the one who is capable. He has the ability. He is able, and it says, to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Uh, to do, now we had seen that um, a, uh, who is able is, is a participle that's being translated who is able. Uh, to do is the infinitive, which is a verbal noun, and it's describing this person who, uh, to him, he, he is the one who does. He's not the one thinking, contemplating. He's the one who is doing. He, he does. He's the one in action, moving. He, he accomplishes. There's always different types of people, even on in any type of project. I mean, you can see it. Uh, if you drive past uh, where 99 and 249 meet, there's like several people watching, and then there's one person working, right? Uh, there's one who is doing, and what describes him is, as the person doing, and then the other ones are contemplating deep in thought what's being done. And, and in contrast to uh, who, who watches, he is the one who does. And in contrast to the one who cannot, he is the one who can, who is able. So it, it's, he, Paul is being very specific in marking who this God is uh, of verse 14. He is the one who is able as opposed to the one who is not able, and he is the one that does. Now, what does he do? Well, as it says here, uh, it says um, uh, far more abundantly. He, he does more. He, he goes beyond. It has the idea that there is a, a certain extent, and he moves past that extent. Uh, if you've ever been invited to someone's home and they they really want to treat you. Uh, they, they don't put a little bit of food on your plate. Uh, I don't know why. But they feel like they must be generous and they load your plate up with food. I remember one time we were in Venezuela at a Christmas party and Carol was there uh, with me and uh, she had finished her plate. They had mounded food on her plate and she very, uh, she, she, she did a good job of finishing all that plate. And the host saw it and said, oh, you're done, and came out with another plate to give to her. Uh, he's being overabundant, going past the extent of what would hospitality require. He wants to move beyond that. And this is the idea that 
It's not that he just can do, but he does far more abundantly. And the idea here, abundantly, is, is a very rare word that we find in the New Testament. In fact, uh, uh, out of all the authors, Paul's the only one that uses the word. It's found in two different places. The, the first is in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, if I can get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, if we start reading over in verse 9 to get the context, it says, uh, For what thanks can be rendered uh, to God for you in return for all the joy which, you, which we rejoice before God on your account? As we, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly, the word translated most is our same word that we find in, in Ephesians, which is um, uh, abundantly. Uh, how is he praying for them? He's praying for them beyond what is required, most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Uh, his, his extent of prayer goes beyond. It's not God bless all the Christians of the world and then, and then he keeps on going. It's an earnest prayer that he is praying for them. And then Paul uses the word again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's read verse 12 just to get a little bit of the context. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you uh, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you may esteem them very highly. That very is our same word. Uh, out of the whole New Testament, all, all the words, only three occurrences happen. And, and Paul uses it twice in Thessalonians and here. So it's this idea of going above and beyond. So if we're going back to Ephesians, trying to understand what he's saying, uh, he's doing it more abundantly. The, the one who is able, who has the capacity, the one who is the doer, not, not the watcher, the one who is able, not the one who is not able. This one is doing far beyond. And of course, it's an adverb, and so we're asking, what is he doing uh, far more abundantly? Well, what he's doing far more abundantly is um, two, two verbs, modifying two verbs. The first is ask, and the other is think. What we, what we ourselves are asking has a present, and what we are thinking or contemplating or grasping. Now, when we see these two verbs, we, we might feel the necessity to object. Because what the verse is saying is that uh, God can do more than what we can ask and more than what we can think. And you might say, <laughs> Paul did not know me because I can ask. I can ask all day long. You should see the list of things I want, the things I want to, the places I want to go, the things I want to do. I can ask all the time, all day long. God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. I want to do, I want to do, I want to do, I want to do. Paul must have not known me. I have an endless, uh, endless desire for things. Or you might say, well, he, he, obviously he did not know my imagination. Had he known my imagination, he would have never written this because I can imagine some things that God could do for me. Of course, we try to spiritualize the things that we want, right? But imagine 
if we had a plane, one of those Boeing 777s, I mean, we could take some missions trips with that thing, right? Load up the whole church, fly out on Monday, come back on uh, Saturday, and, and then be here for church. I mean, we could go, of course, to serve the Lord. It wouldn't be for selfish things, but we'd have to serve the Lord in Hawaii and in the Caribbean, you know, places like that where, that need Jesus. And we, we could imagine some things, right? I mean, we could really just start imagining. And so the, the thing that Paul is saying here is that this one who is able, who, is, who does, he does far beyond what we ask or even what we think. And how does he do this? He does not do it of his power, but he does it according to the power. Not of his power, but according to the power. As in the capability of power that he has, he works this out. There's a lot of power that he has. And he's working this, as it says, he is doing. He is uh, bringing it to pass. Now, this word working, where he is uh, working, that works within us, that word works, has the idea of to act or to operate. To act or to operate. He is acting or operating in us. It's used in the negative sense in Romans chapter 7. If you go to Romans chapter 7, uh, you'll find uh, in this, this section where Paul is addressing, uh, where he's talking about sin. And if we go to verse 5, uh, Paul says in Romans uh, 7, 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by uh, the law, were at work, that's our word, were at work in our members of our body to bear fruit for death. Here's the negative aspect of this word, in that our sinful passions were working, were operating to, to do what? To bear fruit for death. Left to ourselves, left to our, who we are, what our life amounts to, is a working out of our sinful passions for death. And now in the positive sense, though, God is working. He's operating. He's uh, uh, acting. And who is he acting in? It works within us, in us. So uh, he is working. Now, we think about this power that is needed. How much power is needed in us? Well, you have to understand the situation that we were in. Chapter uh, 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses of sin. How much power is needed to bring someone back to life again? You remember the old story of Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster. They're laid out on the table. Uh, how, how was he going to bring it back to, to life? Well, electricity had to come down and hit the thing and, and go in and then hit them on the temples and, and then give them life, but what type of life does the story portray him as? As a sensible human? No. He goes around terrorizing people and so forth and so on as you read the story. Yeah, and it becomes very violent. It's not that type of power that's operating in us, making monsters. It's a power that, that brings life. Now, many of us are accept that God has sufficient power to give us life. 
But then some of us question if he has sufficient power to create the world and everything that we see. Where, where we say, well, you know, he can save us, but this whole idea that God created the world, I, we have too much scientific information to really accept that as truth. But there, I caution you with that line of argument. In a way, you're downplaying your own sinfulness and your own deadness. And then saying that in comparison to creating the world, uh, my sinfulness really wasn't that much. It didn't require that much power. <laughs> my, my deadness really didn't require so much for God to do. It was just something, a little thing, and, and basically I, I was a good person anyways, and he just, just made me a little bit better. No. The one who created everything is, is the one who has worked this power in us to operate, to give us life. It required a tremendous amount of power to work in us. And he's doing this according to the power that he has. Now, verse 21 says, to him, making reference back again to verse 14, uh, to him be uh, the glory. Uh, if you're interested in such things, it's a nominal sentence. It doesn't have a verb. In our English, we've had to uh, put a verb in there. But it's a nominal sentence. And uh, it's... Uh, to him, glory, if you wanted to be rather rough in your translation. Glory is this idea of, uh, of recognizing, of honoring, of giving prestige, of giving fame, of giving recognition. So Paul is saying that God should be recognized, should be talked about, should be giving prestige. Now you can tell the difference between somebody who knows somebody when he, when he or she is giving uh, praise and somebody who doesn't, um, which implies that you have to kind of know the person, you have to know God to be able to give praise to him, to give glory to him. Uh, have you ever been to uh, a funeral where you didn't know, the, the, the person speaking didn't know the person that passed away? They say such general terms of, he was a man, and, and he lived, and I'm so glad we're here today to remember his life. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that was so general. Uh, what, did you know anything about him? That type of general speech is also what is uh, happened when people don't really know God, and they want to give him praise. We want to thank you, Lord, for the sunshine, and you're like, does this person even know God? you got to know him. It says, to him be glory. You can't talk about who he is to recognize, to give him fame if you don't know him. And where is this glory supposed to happen? It says, in the church. Now, when we've looked at this word church, we've said that in the most general sense, the word church is just a group of people. And in the New Testament, there are examples of unsaved assemblies, and it uses the word that is translated here, church. And then there are local churches, and then there is the body of Christ. In this context, because it's talking about the body of Christ, the idea is, as chapter 1, verse 22, 23, here the idea is that the body of Christ is to glorify God. Now, this, glory, this church, what is involved in this? 
Well, it's the ones that Christ has come and redeemed, that the Spirit has convicted of sin. It contextually is this Jews and Gentiles that are a new creature and that they're supposed to be glorifying God and being united with other believers to minister the gospel to the lost. Now, as we look at this and, and we, we see it, and not only is that the church is to glorify, but and in Christ Jesus. Now, for some, this has caused a ton of problems that the, that the church is put before Christ. But it is God who is receiving the glory because it was his plan to make the church. We saw that in chapter 1, 3, all the way to verse 14. It's God's plan. And it was God who established Christ to be the head. He, he made the head. You see that Christ died, he ascended, and God made Christ the head of the church. Now, as we look at this, uh, we can come to some conclusions about this text, these, these verses. Because this glory is supposed to be given for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So what can we conclude? Well, if we were going to give a proposition, per se, it would be glorify God because he made the church and placed Christ as the head. What are we to do as we look at this verses? What are we to do? We're to glorify God because he made the church and placed Christ as the head. And we could then have two points of application of this. Uh, glorify God because he made the church. What was required to make this church? Well, contextually, it, it says that way before Acts chapter 2, uh, God had uh, chosen, predestined, he elected, he adopted. Those who uh, believed were sealed by the Holy Spirit. God has done all these things. What was required to make the church? A lot was required. Not only are we to glorify God because he made the church, but we're also to glorify God because Christ is the head of the church. Now, what unites us all together? What, what brings us together today? Is it not that Christ is the head? How has Christ become the head? Well, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, he's talking about... Uh, how there are many, and yet we become one, it's because we've all partaken of the body of Christ. We've all accepted Christ as our Savior. How, how does a person uh, have life? It's by, as he says, eating his flesh. John chapter 6, 47 through 51. They're looking for bread. Remember? They went and, and found Jesus, and they said, they, we, our fathers ate man in the desert. And, uh, and, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you want to have life, you have to believe. You have to eat me, drink my blood. Many people turned away. They said, no, I don't want to do that. It's a dependence on Christ. Now, it, he brings us together. Jesus brings a unity. It, contextually, he's talking about the, the Gentile and the Jew being brought together in a new creature. We could apply that to whatever context we're dealing with here, whatever divisions that could be here, economic divisions, social divisions, all types of things. Through Christ and his headship, we're brought together, whether you like it or not. Now, 
there is a problem in our text. Because if you remember from the beginning, I said that um, there's two ways that we can study this. And the first way is to understand the sense, as in understanding the words and how the words are related to one another, how they form clauses and how the clauses form paragraphs and how the paragraphs are making a logical argument of, of the text. But that's not the only way that we can look at this. We can also look at the reference. And the reference has to deal with the object or the person and what he does. And in our text specifically, the reference is to God. And what it's saying about God is that he can do, he is able, and he does far more abundant and beyond what we can ask or think. Now, Contextually, in the letter of Ephesians, God has been defined as someone with a plan, and he is working his plan for his glory. He is doing this. It's his idea to save, and he is working it out. Uh, if we also notice from Ephesians, Paul is writing and saying that um, this God that he is referencing is the God of the Old Testament. And we could look at that by the same God who created the heaven and the earth. He's the God who chose Abraham. He's the God who uh, brought Israel out of Egypt. And then when Egypt tried to go and pursue after them, he, he caused the waters of the Red Sea to come upon them. He, he's the God who uh, led them out into the desert and provided for them. And they got to the edge to, to go into the promised land, but they sent some spies in and looked at the land and and they said there was giants, and rather than stepping out in faith, they said, we can't do it. And uh, God said, none of that generation is going to go in. You're going to wander around until you all die. That's, that's the God. That's the God that once that generation all dies, they, he opens the Jordan by cutting off the water and letting all the rest of the water drain down, and they pass through on dry land. And he's the same God who is able to give them victory after victory after victory to conquer the land. He's also the same God who, as they turned away from God, he stirred up the hearts of heathen kings to come and attack them until they would repent and call out to God. And you see that in the book of Judges. But Israel did not continue seeking after God. They, in fact, they sinned so much that God sent Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls him my servant, and sends them out into exile. He's the God that brings them back. Now, thinking about this God, because this is who he's using, what he does here, what Paul is arguing for, is that this God can do more abundantly than what you can ask or think. He is able and he does. Now, as we look at this, we have to ask, how does this work? Because I'm sure at one point or another have said, we have prayed, God, please heal this person. Or God, please heal me. Or, or God, please, please turn the heart of my husband around. Or, or God, please, please, I need, I need this job. I desperately need this job. Or, or maybe you've prayed something like, I, I really need this situation to turn around. 
And what you experienced was is that there wasn't any healing. There wasn't any rescuing. There wasn't a job. And rather than it coming out how you wanted, it came out totally how you did not want it. So we have our experience. And so now with our experience, we're forced to look at what is the force of this text? How are we supposed to understand what, what Paul is writing here? We could just say that maybe Paul is just writing sweet nothings. Uh, you could say that he is exaggerating. Maybe he's exaggerating. Like, like we know deep in our heart that God has limits and he can't really do all this thing, but it's kind of a nice thing to do just to exaggerate a little bit on God. Maybe that's what Paul's doing. Or maybe he's doing like, I don't know if you remember when you were reading in Esther, that um, Esther chapter 3, Mordecai, he, he hears about the plot to kill the king. And so he tells, and the king gets saved, and that gets recorded. Then uh, over in Esther chapter 5, uh, the king can't sleep, and they bring out the, the, the diary, and they, they read the diary to him, and he remembers that uh, Mordecai, and he asks, what was done for Mordecai? And so nothing was done for Mordecai. And he calls Haman. Haman comes in, and he says, you know, what, what should be done if the king wants to honor somebody? And of course, Haman thought, he's talking about me. He said, you know, what you should do is you should put your robe on the person and you should get your horse and your horse, the one that you ride, that everybody knows that's your horse. You, you should set that person on that horse and you should get somebody of importance in the kingdom to, to take that, lead that horse all through the, the, the city, crying out, this is how the king uh, praises this is how the king recompenses the person whom he wishes. And the king said, hey, that's a, that's a really neat thing. Go do that for Mordecai. I mean, can you imagine Mordecai, uh, Haman's jaw just dropping? He, he went out and did it. He, he led the horse and he screamed out the words. But he didn't mean it. He, he didn't mean it. He didn't care about Mordecai. Maybe that's what Paul is doing. Maybe he's just saying something about God, but deep down in his heart, he, he really doesn't believe this. I mean, that God can do more abundantly than what we can think, that we can ask. Or Paul is giving a doxology that is a praise of God for what he actually can do because God's power is unlimited. The problem that we're faced with is how do we combine what Scripture states, and what we experience. How do we combine what Scripture states and what we experience? To do this, we first have to ask ourselves, who is the authority? And we might want to say, well, I'm the authority. I, I, I've been to classes that Paul hasn't been to. I had a chemistry class. I had a biology class. I, I one time saw the class of physics. I didn't go into it, but I saw the class. Uh, you know, I know things that Paul doesn't know. God, God didn't make the earth. He didn't make the heavens. It's just kind of nice things that you say to God. And, and maybe, maybe you can, you, you're smart. But you have to ask yourself, are you really that smart? I mean, do you really know everything? 
And do you know God so intimately well that you can say, he can't do this? I, I don't know if you would be that arrogant to bet on yourself that highly. But you have to determine who's the authority. The other alternative is to allow God to be the authority in his scriptures. Now, of course, we have to understand the words and the clauses and the logical development. But ultimately, it takes faith to accept this. Now, what's the logic of the passage? What's the logic of this passage? Paul's logic, as he's developing this, is he's writing while he's a prisoner. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is in prison, and he's suffering. He's not writing from some high tower where everything is going good in his life, but he is writing from a place of suffering and pain and imprisonment. And yet somehow he does not find it incongruent or illogical that God is able to do everything above what we can ask or think, and he is in a situation of pain and difficulty. He does not find this incongruent at all. In fact, he says that they go together. Now, how, how do we make sense of this then? Well, there's not a verse that says this is exactly how you make sense, but verse 14 through verse 19 says that uh, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in you. And what Paul wants is that God will strengthen the minds so that they can understand that Christ loves you. You say, that doesn't make any sense at all. That doesn't help me one little bit. Knowing that God loves me and he allows me to go through pain does not help me in the least bit. Like, who would do that? Well, parents do this all the time, do they not? I see parents who put their kids in sports here in Houston in the summertime. They're telling their kid, run, run, get the ball. It's like 100 degrees outside. Why would they do that? If you look at the scheme of life, it's a ball going into a, what does it matter? But they're out there screaming, run, son, run. Hit the ball. And they push their kids to be through the pain because they think that somehow, I don't know what it's going to accomplish other than winning. And what's at the end of that? I won a game. Or talk about parents who, who get their kids vaccinated. We got our kids vaccinated and um, took the kids in, and it was going to be painful. They were going to get a shot. There was uh, me and my wife and the kid would go in, and, and uh, the, the nurse would be there with the injection, and um, two of them would be crying. I'm not going to say who the other person was crying, but I wasn't crying. But somebody else was crying, and the baby. And in this, I'm like, you didn't get stuck. Why are you crying? You know, I'm not going to say who it was. but um, the, We put the kid through that pain, and then they would have fevers. They would have these knots on their, on their thighs. Why, why put them through this pain? Because from our limited perspective, we saw that it could be helpful for them. Why? Does God allow you to have that sickness in your life that's not curable? Why did God allow that husband to leave you? Why did you get fired? 
<laughs> I don't have God's perspective to answer that. But what I do have is his word that he loves you. And he's in sovereign control. And he, out of love, allows that pain in your life. It's not a God distance. It's a loving God that brings it into your life. And you say, how does it work? How, how does this help me at all? I don't know. But you have to put faith in a loving God that's in control of all things, even those things that you don't like. We're to glorify God because he made the church and placed Christ as the head and because he is able to do much more than what we can ask or think. Some of you, this doesn't make any sense at all because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've never gotten to that point. And I would encourage you now to consider if you really know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can put your faith in Christ and be saved. For other of us here, maybe we've been living and we have a situation and we're wondering, how does this fit? And we might never understand how it fits but we know that God loves us. And it's through his love that he is changing us. Let's pray. Father, we don't claim to understand to know how you work. Father, I pray now that as we contemplate your greatness, that we will trust the fact that you will allow pain in our lives, not out of hate, but out of love. Father, that you'll use these things for your glory and for our good. Father, from our perspective, we, we can't understand it. I pray that we'll have faith to trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray.